And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I caught up with an old friend yesterday, Tom Knives, the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Tom has a long and auspicious history in American politics and government and finance, and a story I'd like to explore at greater length at some future date. But the ambassador was on a tight timetable, and I wanted to focus on the current crises in Israel posed by Prime Minister Netanyahu's plan to curtail the country's independent judiciary, the Israeli government's decision to retroactively approve nine more settlements in the occupied West Bank, and the subject of how the U.S. may respond to these things. Here's that conversation. Ambassador, it's great to see you. Full disclaimer here, we're, we're good friends, so it's always good to see you. Let me just jump right in because I know you are pressed for time. When you got this job, you said, uh, which is a little more than a year ago, you said, well, my job is to try and promote calm. Uh, so how are things going these days, my friend? Yeah, a little harder than I anticipated. Listen, the most important thing is is that this relationship between the United States and Israel is an unbreakable bond, and which is the direction I got from the president when I took this job. And we're going to continue, even though when we disagree, which we're going to disagree, that's what friends do. Listen, you have followed the U.S.-Israel relationship for a long time, David. You know all the players. Um, this is what friends do, and we're going to disagree on things that we don't like. That does not in any way suggest that we don't have Israel's back, that we don't support Israel's security. Really important to understand that. But we are going to argue when we believe in things that are strongly uh, against the interests we believe are in Israel's best interest. Uh, but we're going to work with them when we can. I want to come back to this very point, but let me set this thing up because actually you did pretty well on the calm front for about a year. And uh, there was a new, uh, another election, I think, there were five in the last few years, uh, and you have a new government in Israel. Bibi Netanyahu is back as prime minister, but the cost of uh, putting his government together by a very narrow margin was uh, it is the most right-wing government in the history of Israel. Uh, religious parties are empowered in a way they haven't been, and that's created two issues that you're grappling with right now. I could see the lines in your face uh, that re, uh, reflect that. One has to do with the the nature of democracy in Israel, and the other has to do uh, with the continued development of settlements by Israel in occupied areas. So let me start with uh, the first. Prime Minister Netanyahu and his, his coalition are moving along a series of proposals that would, in many ways, gut the power of the, an independent judiciary in Israel. You've been more outspoken than any American ambassador generally would on this. The president of the United States has commented on it, which is highly unusual. Tell me what you think the state of play is there and what you think the consequences of these proposals would be for Israeli democracy. Well, it's a, good, it's a great question. We have to step back for a second and, and to say the following. First of all, um, you were right. This is a vibrant democracy, as proven by the numbers of the tens of thousands of people who are protesting every Saturday. Hundred, hundred thousand. Yeah. Hundred, hundred fifty thousand on Saturday. Uh, yeah. You know, hundred thousand yeah. yesterday at the Knesset. The reality is, is that 72% of this country voted for the fifth time in two years. 
Okay. It's unbelievable. I mean, we can only dream of that in America, right? To get anywhere near 60%, <laughs> right? Just think about this. So this is a vibrant democracy. People care deeply about this place, including the 23% of Arab uh, Israelis, 57% of them showed up. So people really care. As I like to say, they give a damn here yeah. a lot. And, yes. and they're, they're debating. So Netanyahu wins. He wins uh, 64 seats. He needs 61 to win. He got 64, which is doesn't strike like it sounds like a lot, but it is actually a significant percentage of the vote that he got for the for the coalition. Um, one of the things that they believe that they were able to why people voted for him was this idea of judicial reform. You know, we can debate if that's why people really went and voted. I think people really voted for security and, and economics, no different than America. We could also debate whether it actually is reform, but that's yeah. That so, in, I, so I'm not exactly sure what you know what we they can read into an election. We all know. People who misread election results uh, tend to overreach, as we've seen both in our all politics in the United States, and I think they're probably facing that same thing here. Uh, but at the end of the day, the United States is not going to be in the position to tell and dictate to Israel how they pick their Supreme Court. Okay, I don't think we should be doing that. However, to be clear, the one thing that binds our countries together is a sense of democracy and a sense of democratic institution. That is how we defend Israel at the UN. That's how we stand up for the values that we share. And when we believe that those democratic institutions are under, in, under stress and strain, we're articulating. That's what we're doing now. We're telling the prime minister um, that, as I tell my kids, pump the brakes, okay? slow down, try to get a consensus, bring the parties together. This is very complicated. It's as, it's as, they're trying to do things way too fast and to pump the brakes, slow down. So that's the message I've been saying to the prime minister. I think President Biden has been saying the articulation around the democratic values, as yeah. well as uh, Secretary Blinken. As you know, David, you work with uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden really, really cares about Israel. Okay, yeah. He believes in his heart and his soul, his kishkas, as we, us Jews yes. would like to say. Yes, yes, yes. Jews, would yes. say he is, you know, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. He cares about this place. So when he speaks up, he does speak from a position of, of passion and caring. Well, there are a few things in there that I want to ask you about. One thing, you know, you come from a Jewish family in Duluth, Minnesota. Your dad was a leader of the Jewish community in Duluth. And I come from a Jewish family as well. My father was an immigrant. I don't know when your family came over. But one of the things that my family and I always took great pride in was this vibrant democracy, as you describe it, in a place where there'd never been a democracy before. And one of the reasons that Americans feel such a bond uh, to Israel is, is that, that this is a flourishing democracy in, the, in a part of the world that really hasn't seen uh, a democracy. And, uh, but it has no constitution, and this has always been reliant on a very strong independent judiciary. The prime minister is under indictment, three different indictments when he was elected. That case is still pending. So he has a vast, a vested interest in this. When we all talk about our pride in Israel, isn't this an, a major element of it? And wouldn't it be damaging to Israel's sort of soul if the judiciary suddenly became an adjunct to the government? Well, let's first of all, uh, I did grow up as a little Jewish kid in Minnesota. I was the you know, the youngest of eight kids, uh, and my parents, we weren't religious Jews, we we're cultural Jews. You know, we lit the candles on Friday nights and we went to help a couple times a year. I went to Israel first time at 15. So I was like, you, I, you know, I, 
I care deeply about Israel. I don't ever pretend to be a religious guy, but I am probably going more religious now in this job. Yes, you may be praying quite a bit lately. I'm certainly praying more in this job than I ever did before, <laughs> but that's another issue. Yeah, listen, I think at the end of the day, perception is reality, both in politics, certainly in politics, and, and also, as you know, I spent half my career in business as well, so perception is important. The perception is among at least 50% of this country is they're going too fast. And that the that this that the actions they're taking is somehow going to change the democratic values of this country. You know, we can debate if if this if the judiciary system doesn't need some reform. Okay, let's assume it does. Like many judiciaries, I mean, this is a complicated place. They um they have they don't have enough judges here. The judges are overwhelmed. Okay, let's accept that. But my point has been, go slow, build some consensus. Be the democratic country that this country is. Step back. Try to bring the opposition together. Listen, it may not, it's not going to be perfect. And I, I do think at the end of the day, they will do that. But a lot of damage is getting done in the meantime. And obviously, you know, my hope is that they, you know, cooler heads will prevail and understand they're trying to do something significant. And without getting into all the details of, of what it is and what it isn't, the reality is there is a belief among not only, uh, the, the, the the population in Israel for at least 50, maybe almost 60% of the people, and certainly American Jews, and not just reformed liberal Jews like me, but moderate and conservative Jews are quite worried. So I think we they, they need to hear it. Sometimes even when you hear things you don't want to hear, you need to hear it and step back. Adds, by the way, what President Herzog, the president of this country, is trying to yeah, do. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about that. He, he's trying to do this. He's trying to bring the parties together. You, you, He made a speech the other night to the country. And we should point out that that is a ceremonial office, largely the presidency uh, of Israel, but it always uh, carries some uh, uh, moral suasion. Uh, and he said um, that uh, the country was on the brink of constitutional and social collapse and possibly a violent clash. He said, we are not in a political debate anymore. We are on the brink of a social and constitutional collapse. Powder keg is about to explode. And you... I think meaningfully, uh, tweeted, uh, great speech tonight by a great leader. Thank you, President Herzog. And you said a strong Israeli democracy gives us the ability to defend Israel, the UN, as you said, right here. What does that mean if this thing goes forward? What does it mean about America's ability to defend Israel and the UN? Well, let me first say, I love Bougie Herzog, okay? Yes. And just, just for your audience to understand, he's not just the president. He's run for office himself. He ran for prime minister. Almost won the prime ministership. Son of a of an esteemed president. So son of son of son of a president. Grandson of a chief rabbi. His brother is the ambassador to Israel. It is a family business. Okay, the Herzogs are the heart and soul of Israel, regardless of your left, right, or center. So him speaking up and speaking out is hugely important, and it will, and hopefully it will galvanize uh, the current government to come to the table, including the opposition, because they need to come to the table too if we're going to actually work this out. Listen, we are going to support Israel, just, just so there's no misunderstanding about it. We've got Israel's back, both on security uh, and at the UN. We'll work with them. Uh, we'll get through this period of time, in my view. Uh, it's going to be rough. It's going to get tough. But as I said at the beginning, you can have a great relationship with your ally, and when you disagree, you disagree. Yeah. And there's things that we're going to disagree about. But Tom, I guess the question people would ask, and the question I'm asking is, what leverage do you have? If, if in fact, 
the position of the United States is we're going to disagree. We may profoundly disagree, but it won't change anything we do. If that is the well, position. I, did, I, did I say that? I'm not sure I said that, David. No, but I mean, I think, uh, you know, the question is around the UN and we can we'll put that aside for a second. Okay. Let's, let's talk about this. The, the reality is I like to say the prime minister wants to do big things. Okay. He tells us he wants to do big things. Big things include Iran, which we could talk about and what's going on with Iran, which is a secured, massive security risk for, for Israel and quite frankly for the Middle East and the U.S. Second, he would like to expand the Abraham Accords with getting Saudi Arabia involved in, this, in the Abraham Accords, which ultimately more uh, would help. More Arab countries recognizing Israel. Would help the security of Israel. In both cases, America plays an important role in all of this, okay? Everything we do that Israel does, we play an important role in it. So we, we, have, we have plenty of things that we're working collectively on. And as I said to him, uh, the prime minister, a hundred times, we can't spend times on things we want to work on together if your backyard's on fire, okay? So ultimately, you know, things such as settlement growth and things that we will talk about, including judicial reform. Although, again, I want to be clear. The United States is not sitting here telling Israel how they should pick the Supreme Court, okay, or what they should be doing on judicial reform beyond the fact that we believe a strong democratic values, democratic institutions are critical to our relationship, okay, and to, and to try to create consensus among your people. You know, we got to be careful in, in what we tell countries how to do and what to do. And then we have a, a, a close, unbreakable relationship with Israel, and we have the space to tell Israel when we think they should be working towards uh, better goals than they're currently on. Well, we, we've made it clear, for example, that we oppose the settlement policy. And Sunday night and Sunday, the cabinet voted to uh, retroactively authorize nine outposts that we consider illegal as authorized settlements. So we've made it clear. You've said this is very important in terms of preserving the possibility of a two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli state. They, led by the religious parties represented in the cabinet, basically just thumb their nose at you and that whole theory. And I guess the question is, if we keep expressing our strong disapproval and they keep doing things that are fundamentally antithetical to the principles that we lay down, what should people conclude about that? And what should the Israeli government conclude about that? Well, listen, it's a great point. Listen, as you, as you and I both know, we both served in the Obama administration together. Uh, I happen to have served in the Clinton administration. Uh, we've watched it in the Trump administration, the Bush administration. Um, you know, obviously this issue around settlement growth and outposts has been a, a vexing issue for our country, uh, for Israel, as by the way, uh, for the Arab countries as well, who, you know, tend not to speak up as much as they should vis-a-vis some of the actions that are going on in the West Bank. You know, we have the power of the microphone. We have the power of uh, the coalition. We have the power of getting things done together and collectively. And we will express those. Listen, this administration, Joe Biden has made it clear. You know, he cares deeply about this bilateral relationship, but we will not uh, roll over. Uh, we will not uh, ignore uh, actions that we think are against our values. And we'll work not only with the Israeli government, we'll work with the world. As you probably saw literally uh, a day and a half ago, uh, the U.S. led um, uh, the Europeans on a, a very strong uh, message to Israel about what we thought uh, this, the settlement announcement outposts were done. And we are, you know, we'll take, we're advising, we're talking, we're having conversations about actions we can and should take vis-a-vis this. But this has not been the, 
you know, this administration is not the first administration that has dealt with, as you know, uh, the settlement issue, and it won't be the last. Uh, we have a clear view that um, a two-state solution is the only way to keep uh, Israel a democratic Jewish state, and we will continue to articulate very aggressively uh, that position. I remember, uh, actually, and you probably do too, when the uh, then Vice President Biden uh, went to Jerusalem for consultations uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he arrived, and the very day he arrived, uh, more settlements were authorized. Again, it seemed like a, you know, an act of open defiance of our very strongly stated position. And I remember when my family, we all pooled money together in the late 50s to send my grandfather and grandmother to Israel. And I remember what an emotional experience it was for them, as it has been for me in the six visits I've made there. But, you know, 70% of the Israeli population doesn't believe that a two-state solution is even possible anymore. And a lot of policymakers don't because the more settlements you establish, the harder it is to do that. And then there are issues on the Palestinian side as well. It seems like an empty kind of phrase at this point because no, there is no movement toward that. There's more violence on both sides. Why should people believe that, A, there is a two-state solution to be had at this point, and B, that the U.S. is going to do anything materially to try and stop the development of additional settlements? Well, Bruce, it's a great, great question. Listen, that's I talk about as a vision of a two-state solution, okay? Because I think it's important that we, that as we chase this kind of idea of a two-state solution, which, by the way, you know, you can't want it more than the parties want it. We talk about 70% of Israelis and equally the side of the Palestinians. They either don't believe it or don't really want it, okay? If they want it, they're not sure it's ever going to happen. So I spend 60% of my time trying to help the Palestinian people, okay? I spend my time trying to get the Allenby Bridge open 24-7 so, so Palestinians who want to go to Jordan don't have to wait for hours and hours to get over the bridge. I push aggressively to get an agreement on 4G so people, the Palestinian people have 4G, not 2G on their phones. I, I got the, and, and I say I, I mean, uh, the American government, we spent, you know, I got $100 million to, to build out the hospitals in East Jerusalem for Palestinian people. What I what frustrates me the hell out of this job is, as we chase around the, the idea of a two-state solution and this summit, at the end of the day, it's all about the people, okay? It's all about the Palestinian people. It's all about taking care, without compromise, security of the state of Israel, it's for doing things for the Palestinian people. And they'll say, oh, Tom, you know, it's incrementalism. I don't care. At the end of the day, if I can do, we do half a billion dollars now to the Palestinian people through UNRWA, which is not a perfect organization, by the way, education, healthcare, you know, real materiality to help the average Palestinian wakes up every day, just like the average Israeli, and all they want is security and job and freedom and opportunity. Nothing more complicated than that. An American's job, in my humble view, is to do the best they can to provide that. And yes, we need to have a vision, an opportunity for a two-state solution. In the meantime, I don't want everything falling apart. So I'm trying to like spend my time, you know, getting things done that are real, that, that the average person can wake up and say, okay, I got, you know, listen, I, I have something. I, you know, I can, I can go to school. I have decent health care. You know, I, I've got an opportunity. I had Google come. Uh, you know, uh, a few months ago, I gave $35 million for education for Palestinian and Haredi communities to educate them on how to use 
technology tools to, to provide them opportunities and jobs. That's what this is about. And so, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, I, you know, listen, the, the idea of a two-state solution is, wouldn't that be great? I'd love to have the Nobel Peace Prize. I love Joe Biden. I'd like you, you know, to get Rose that too. Garden. Yeah. You know, listen, we both like it, right? And, <laughs> but, but I think, uh, listen, and I think, I think the president believes the same thing. He wants, obviously, the security of the state of Israel, and he wants to help Palestinian people. And that's what I'm trying to do. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. You've got a prime minister in Israel who is avowedly opposed to a two-state solution, and in fact, campaigns saying, if I'm prime minister, there'll, there'll not be a two-state solution. You have a enfeebled leader of the Palestinian Authority and President Abbas, who's really lost the respect of large numbers of his own People and he's 87 years old, and there's no obvious replacement. Palestinian security forces have deteriorated, and we've seen increased violence in the West Bank, in Israel itself, violence on both sides. Why should people feel hopeful that this cycle will be broken? Listen, I'm not dreaming. I'm not, I'm not a dreamer. I, I, I don't know if it'll be. Listen, I, I got it. You got a boss who's, you know, 87. You got, you know, the, you have a conservative government. That's why I am focused on the things that make a difference, guys. I'm on trying to every day wake up and try to do things that help the Palestinian people. That's money that listen for the first, listen, under the Trump, under the foreign administration, I don't know politics anymore because I'm a diplomat. Yes. However, under the foreign administration, I, I, you're, I see you're trying hard to be diplomatic, but go ahead. Okay, I'm trying. It's I'm getting close <laughs> to the edge. Keep a couple more minutes of this interview, and I may flip over. But as you recall, as you recall, under the Trump administration, they cut off all the funding for the Palestinians. Okay, everything. Okay, under the Biden administration, over the last two years, we've given them about seven hundred fifty million dollars of a direct assistance to the Palestinian people, not to the PA, 
because other Taylor Force, we can't do that. But to the Palestinian people, that's real. That's material. That's, that's something that actually makes a difference. And that's what we're trying to do. So I, I don't, I'm listening. I could drive myself crazy. I could wake up every night in, in tantrums about, Oh my God, you know, I got this with Netanyahu and I got this in a boss. We're never going to get a two state solution. They're building settlements. Okay. I got that. We're going to have to handle that on one track. At the same time, we cannot lose sight of trying to help the average person who wakes up every day, who does not wake up every day and say, Oh, where's my Tuesday solution? No, they wake up and say, where am I going to get my education? Where am I going to get my job? Can I make a living? You know, can I buy a car? Those are real things. So again, I, I, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not suggesting that there's, there's this magical formula that I'm concocting that we're going to lay out to the, to the Israeli people in the American Congress about what we're doing. Um, we're trying to face every day and trying to, to manage this on a day to day basis. And by the way, um, other foreign administrations have, have come up with big peace plans, as you know. Um, and sadly, um, as we chase that rabbit down the hole, we're not focusing on the things that need to happen on a day to day basis for the Palestinian people and, and be clear on the security for the state of Israel. Because ultimately, I believe the reason I support a two state solution, I think it maintains Israel as a democratic Jewish state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Until someone says to me, Hey, Tom, I got this new idea that you can have a one state and you can keep a Jewish democratic state. That's great. Show it to me. It's, it's, it's not possible. And until someone shows us a way that you can have 3 million people who live in the West Bank have the same rights as the 9 million people who live in Israel, you can pull that off. You know, then let's have a conversation. But that sadly, that is not the case. And that's why it's important to keep a vision of a two-state solution alive. I did want to ask you about that, about because we started by talking about democracy. And uh, and this has always been the strong argument for the two-state solution is to maintain the character of Israel as a Jewish democratic state. Uh, there needed to be a two-state solution. When you make those arguments to the government, the Israeli government, what is their response? You know, listen, like every, you know, a core of them think I'm an idiot and that, you know, forget it. You know, I would say 50% of them, you know, agree with it, that there's no scenario here, which is why we keep agreeing to keep these conversations going. And 25%, you know, don't pay attention to me. So, so I think there is, there is this, there's a, there's just like in any democracy, right? Listen, by the way, in the former government, which obviously we had a close relationship with, Prime Minister Bennett. Bennett did not support a two-state solution, but Lapid right. did. By the way, Lapid right. did. Bennett did. Okay, you know, again, we, there are people in this government, you know, that certainly did not support. We should point out they were the. For those who don't know, they shared uh, leadership of that coalition. They alternated playing the prime minister role. If I knew I was going to have this many prime ministers, <laughs> I would have tried to get the job in London. Better housing. If I, had, you know, I've had three <laughs> prime ministers. In, in less than two years, I could have gotten there the same idea and I get to do with the king and not have to do with all this stuff. But the you reality- You should have to me, brother. I could have straightened you out. You should have helped me, man. You know how to get these <laughs> jobs. So, so I think it's, so for me, I'm not, I try not to get distracted, okay? I try not to get distracted. Every time people try to take me off the road of, you know, let's do this dreamy, dreamy, dreamy thing. You know, listen, as you know, I'm a very practical guy. I'm a realistic guy. I don't, I, I just, I spend a lot of time a lot of time working with the Palestinians trying to help them, you know? On the other hand, I've been to every shiva call of every Israeli who sadly has been killed by a terrorist in the last 18 months, okay? I mean, if you walk into a family of someone you've never met before, 
and their kid was killed, you know, 16 hours earlier. And you sit and hold the hand of that mother who lost her kid. You know, it's, it's, it's something you never want to ever, ever, ever experience. So I understand the threat Israel is under. So make no mistake. Okay. There, this is not, and that's not even beginning. We talk about the, you know, the threat of Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas. So they're, they're, this is serious for them. This is a serious issue. And I don't in any way discount it. At the end of the day, the vast, vast, vast majority of Palestinians do not wake up and think about how I can kill a Jew. Okay. That's ridiculous. Okay. They have the same values and the same interests that we do. And so I want to understand that and make sure that the reaction of one thing doesn't create another reaction of somewhere else. I completely appreciate that. You know, one of the things that the uh, sort of collapse of the Palestinian security forces has done is it has provoked more activity on the part of the Israeli defense forces in the West Bank. And there's been a whole lot of concern about incidents there, excessive use of force. And you talk about sort of mutual provocations. Are you worried about this sort of spiraling out of control? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, guys, I mean, it's, 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 it's terrible. I mean, you have, you have a couple of things going on, right? You've got the, you got the Palestinian security forces. So for your listeners to understand, the, the, the Palestinians have their own security forces. Many of them are very well trained, uh, trained by America. Um, you know, a lot of them are, are very well equipped, also helped by America and other people. Uh, we, I think the Israelis would love to have, uh, the Palestinians do all the security stuff themselves. So when there's a terrorist group and, a place like Hebron or Janine, that they go in as Palestinians and try to get the bad guys out. And they, by the way, the Palestinians don't like the bad guys either. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons why the Palestinians won't do that. Some of it is money because the money has been cut off by some of the, by Israel. So some of it aren't being funded properly. So what ends up happening? Israel comes in, IDF comes in and, and does the work. And that creates this, a revolving issue. So 100% right. Every action, creates a reaction, okay? And both these parties, you know, find themselves, one does one thing, so the IDF soldier comes in and they're and they're under attack. They kill an innocent Palestinian, um, terrible. The Palestinians react to that and they create another action. And it's, it's just how these things unravel. It's, it's tragic. It's tragic because the vast majority of these people are innocent people. These are not, the, yes, the guys, the guys who wake up who are terrorists, who want to come into Israel and kill uh, Israelis, they got to be put in jail. They had to be locked away. And there are people that are doing that. I've been to these chip calls. I've seen this happen. Okay. And we, and I think Israel would say if they, they want the Palestinians, to, to the security forces to take those actions. And they do do that, by the way, just to be clear, they have done it and they can do it, but because of funding and other rational reasons, the IDF goes in themselves. So it's a cycle, as you said, and it's, it, it, it breaks my heart. Okay. It breaks my heart with an innocent Palestinian who had nothing to do with gets killed. And it certainly breaks my heart when a, when an innocent Jew is leaving a synagogue and gets, you know, mowed down by, you know, some terrorists that breaks my heart. And it's just, it's terrible. It's terrible. Do provocations like changing the status of the Temple Mount that is a, you know, is such an important religious site for Muslims as well as Jews, is that not a provocation? 100%. 100%. Well, I was the first person out there when Ben Gavir, you know, went up to the Temple Mount to stir up trouble, in my view, okay? You do not need to do that. 
Uh, he's I a member of the cabinet who's sort of in the... I appreciate Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, saying we are not going to change the status quo of the Temple Mount. You know, as you know, you know, non, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, a Muslim go up to pray, not, non-Muslims uh, can visit. Um, that's mm-hmm. the rule. Uh, that's the status quo. Uh, that's what we have, uh, we have evoked. It, 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 it lights up the Middle East when they, when they do provocative, you know, provocative acts. Uh, and we were very aggressive as well as the rest of the GCC countries uh, when this occurred. So Netanyahu came out forcefully and said he does not support, he supports the status quo, uh, to keep it as calm as possible. You're a hundred percent right. This is a kind of nonsense in my view that is lights things on fire. Ben Gavir is the uh, minister who is also the engineer of the settlement policy now, and he believes, as the religious parties do, that there is a a biblical claim to the West Bank, and therefore that supersedes other factors. And this is the political sort of debt that the prime minister faces. So it seems hard to solve that problem. But let's get back to the original question about the, uh, the current crisis, because President Herzog has met with with various players here trying to promote a, as you say, to slow down the process, to promote compromise and so on. The bill uh, had its first reading in the parliament, the Knesset there on Monday. Do you think this train will be slowed down? Yes, I do. Uh, maybe I'm optimistic. It does, it, they have to, guys. They have to. Listen, the one thing that is getting the attention of uh, the prime minister, as it should, is the economic impact this could have. Listen, the, the prime minister deserves credit. He was at the forefront of the startup nation. He deserves credit for igniting what was an economic boom here in Israel. Okay. And he was at the forefront as uh, minister of finance and as prime minister the third and fourth time. He's now the prime minister sixth time. He deserves credit for that. And he should be concerned, which he is about the perception that this judicial reform will have impact among businesses, about investing here, okay? That is that is getting his attention, and it's justifiably. Tom Friedman wrote a piece today in the New York Times, a fellow Minnesotan, by the way. Which yes, I know. Reiterated this as well, which is this idea of the, the miracle that was created here. So, you know, my hope is, is with, with the understanding of that, the fact that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelis are showing up the protest that, 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 that people will slow down, slow down, pump the brakes, look back, try to decide, you know, how they build consensus, break these different pieces apart, have debate, have a legislative process that's timely and, and articulate of people's be able to articulate their views and have a process. I believe maybe I'm dreaming, maybe, but I believe that cooler heads will prevail and that we'll be in that situation. We'll see. I mean, again, this is happening quite quickly. So, you know, uh, I may be right or I may be wrong, but my hope is it's good for, it's, it'll be good for people to slow down here. And just to be clear on both these issues, the settlements and on this issue of judicial reform, as the prime minister calls it, if this train continues down that track on judicial reform, if this train continues down the track on more and more authorization of settlements and development of settlements, will there be repercussions in the relationship between not just the U.S., but other allies, as you mentioned, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, all spoke out on this issue of settlements uh, over overnight. Will there be repercussions or will there just be strong words? 
Yeah, listen, dude, you know, you've been in the White House, okay? You've served in this government. You understand how this works. Um, I think every action will be viewed on uh, separately. Uh, and I, I'm very convinced that between uh, Secretary Blinken, who is very focused on Israel and the Middle East, the president who has spent his career working on these issues, uh, Jake Sullivan, who is, you know, enormously immensed in these issues, We'll all come together and figure out what the correct reactions are to these actions. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Generally, I go through a long period of biography, and I wish I had time to do that with you because even yeah, why you not, Dave? Come because, on, David. What's that? Very nice. You, you, your biography is—you may deny it, but it's really very, very rich and interesting. And you've been in so many sort of historically important places. But tell me, you were a kid in Minnesota. Uh, you got the senator from that state, Walter Mondale, to come to your high school and speak. He was the vice president. Oh, that's Don't right. Sell, he was the vice president, vice president at that time. Yeah. By the way, the most normal human being I've ever known who's run for president of the United States, ever. I mean, just uh, a really, int- just a very grounded, good-humored, uh, well-motivated human being. But tell me what drew you to politics, because you went on to be in the uh, legislative branch as a young man at, in high places. I guess you met uh, your wife, Virginia Mosley there, who's now a muckety-muck at CNN, but she must have been a young reporter in the, on the Capitol when you was when you met her. Yeah, and she's actually at CBS. Yes. Uh, when I was working for the Speaker of the House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you, I mean, you ran uh, Joe Lieberman's campaign when he, was, uh, when he was the vice presidential candidate. And then obviously you've served in high places, uh, you know, in the State Department and elsewhere. Tell me what drew you to all this in the first place, and what has it been like to start off as a little pisher, as we would say, in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, and to go on this journey that's taking you to the highest reaches of government? Well, David, listen, I, you know, it's a prison. It has a lot to do with luck, okay, guys? I was a young, you know, youngest of eight kids. I was a Pell Grant kid, okay? I had no cash. You know, I went to University of Minnesota. You know, I spent my first three years working in the dishroom at the dormitory clean other people's dishes uh, to make any cash to go to school. I got lucky. You know, I think I have decent values. I care deeply about, you know, humanity. I care deeply about being involved. You know, you know, sitting on the sidelines, I think is really stupid. You know, I tell people all the time when I give speeches, you know, to sit around and just complain about how crappy things are and not do anything about it, then you shouldn't complain. And, you know, I, I grew up in an environment that you need to get back, you need to get involved and you get in the game. And, Listen, it's interesting, as you both both of us know, it's frustrating, madly frustrating. But I wake up every day just trying, trying to do the right thing. You know, I don't always get it right. Listen, we're none of us are perfect. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm really lucky. And listen, you know, I'm, I'm not a big risk taker 
uh, in some cases, but I'm a risk taker with my career. And I think you got to get in the game. And, you know, because I've had really good relationships with people who have been nice enough to help me as I try to help other people, you know, I'm humbled by this, guys. Being the American ambassador to the state of Israel, arguably one of our most important allies, is the most humbling experiences one could have. Okay. Uh, and I'm, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it was, there's a lot of people. What was your family of, what was your family of thought back in the day? Oh, my, I only wish, you know, my father, my father died, I don't know, not, you know, 12 years ago. My mother died like 14, 15 years ago. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm most, all my, my, sadly, my oldest sister passed away a few years ago, but I, um, I'd love to see my parents' face. I mean, again, uh, I think they'd be enormously proud, not because again, they were like these religious people, but they, they, they would be proud that I, you know, I, that I mean it. I'm like, I'm trying to do something. I, I don't, and I don't. I don't care about all the other nonsense that comes with these jobs. By the way, if you really want an ambassadorship that's like, you know, like glory and you can have a lot of fun dinner parties, you can go with like our friend Rom to Japan. <laughs> I want to do a shout out to Rom. But, but the reality of this is, uh, this, this is, this is a fight every day. Okay. It's a fight to make sure that this, that we, st- our, our alliance stays solid, that what's a democratic Jewish state. I help the Palestinian people. I help the security of the state of Israel. It's, it's an everyday kind of commitment that we all have. Tom, let me just ask you this on the way out. You know, when I grew up, the support for Israel among American Jews and the pride in Israel was palpable. Maybe it's just because I grew up in New York. Maybe it's because my family were immigrants, but I felt that strongly. Do you worry about, and do you think that Netanyahu and his coalition underestimate the concern among a lot of Jews in America about some of these policies that we've talked about today. And do you worry about a fraying of that if, in fact, Israel takes an, a sort of undemocratic turn, if the settlement policies are pursued, if the violence on both sides continues? Do you worry about that? I mean, I worry about it. What I really worry about, David, what keeps you up at night and what's going on college campuses, because what what, that's what really worries me. When I work on one. As you, you know, know when you, when so you see what see happens, it. you know, if you stand up and you're a Jewish kid or a non-Jewish kid and you talk about Israel, it's very difficult. Okay? And we've lost the narrative on college camps and we got to focus on that. And, you know, I said to some, I just did before I did this interview, I did a tape for Hillel. You know, I never was a Hillel guy, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's a Hillel's all over the universities. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, guys, you can be, we've lost this narrative. You can be pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian people. Somehow we've missed that narrative on college campuses. You, you can have the discussion saying, I care about the Palestinian people and I am pro-Israel. That's okay. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Tom, you can also be opposed to terrorism and the brutality that Israelis have known and be critical when human rights are abridged of Palestinians. And you can be forthright about that. And, and, and by well. the way, David, just to be clear, both sides, okay? The Palestinians have... You know, they, they have got plenty of issues themselves. So, but my view of this is what worries me more than anything is, is the next generation, okay? The next generation of kids who are at college campus and graduate school. And, it, and, and that to me is my biggest fear. And yes, Israel needs to do a better job of communicating. They need to communicate a way that, that young people believe that Israel is a democratic country. They're protecting the rights of people. Oh, they are. Is it purely a communications issue or are there, or or is it, is it also like, does there need to be proof points behind? 
Totally, 100%. Listen, I'm all about action deliverables, okay? But remember one thing. Israel has 9 million people. 23% of the country, 24% of the country are Arab Israelis, okay? Who live side by side with Israelis every day. Every day, okay? Who Netanyahu demonized in his campaign. Again, they live side by side with most Israelis. Most Israelis are very comfortable. This is what Israel is about, okay? The country was, was independent. 75 years ago, it's a very young country, okay? 75 years ago, this year is the 75th anniversary of the state of Israel. Like any new young country, uh, it's got it's got to continue evolving, which is you're seeing right now. And you got to push back. Friends have to push back on Israel when they're doing stupid things. Likewise, we got to push back on the Palestinians when they're doing stupid things. We got to keep the vision of a two-state solution alive. That is my view. And we got to make sure we don't lose sight of what's really important which is every day trying to take care of the people, both in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. And also a strong independent judiciary, which has, to its credit, safeguarded the civil rights of Arab citizens, of Palestinians, as well as Jewish citizens, which may be one of the complaints of the critics, but is one of the, uh, it's a tribute to Israeli democracy. I hope that it continues. Anyway, I know your staff, I don't want to run afoul of the uh, embassy staff here. So I'm going to let you go. Nor do, my I, way, nor do I. That makes two of us, my friend. But I will. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you offline uh, soon and uh, I look forward to sharing some meals with you. Uh, when Thanks, you pal. Get back I here. appreciate you very much. Look forward to Thank seeing you. you. Okay, man. Thank you. All right, Same here. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.